good to have everybody, and I hope you're off to a, a happy and a good and prosperous new year. This is our vision weekend, and we thought it's important at the start of a new year to refresh, renew, and remind everybody in the house, what's our mission? What are we here for? What business are we actually in? Because in church and religion, it's it's quite subjective sometimes, and sometimes unintentionally we lose our mission, our focus, and what we're really here for, and you can just drive the gospel bus into the ditch on side issues, issues that are not the main thing. So if you're in business, they'll always tell you, keep the main thing, the main thing. And so we want to learn what that is and renew our mind today. And then we hope everybody will partner with us in the good news business by going out, if you're not already involved, into the lobby and looking at all the tables, talking to some of the people there who are hosts, who are involved in those ministries, and find out how you can connect, how you can help us advance good news. We're in the good news business. As I reflect back on our church's 30-year-plus history and our move here to this property in 2008, I'm always reminded that's when the whole world's economy went right in the toilet. Do you all remember that? I can never remember when we got here because that's when the whole world collapsed, <laughs> the whole financial market, 2008. And I find myself asking, what are things going to look like in five years? How about 10 years? Will we be embracing new visions, dreaming new dreams, risking new adventures? We've got a lot of diversity in this church. We've got a lot of people in their 20s, a lot of people in their 50s, and a few people above, <clears throat> included the one speaking to you. <laughs> but what's God asking us to do now that we're not doing yet? And what could God be telling us it's time to stop doing that we are doing? So on a personal level, what's the vision God has for your life, for your career? for your relationships. As a church, what's our sense of calling? How are we going to live in a materialistic culture and yet cultivate generous spirits and actually see the release of God's resources for God's kingdom work? And yes, I hope one of you will win that one and a half billion dollar Powerball. And I hope the first thing you do is tithe it. How about a good amen? And then fly everybody to the Super Bowl. We'll charter a few jets, the big ones, and I'll have a church service before the Super Bowl in a hotel ballroom. Yeah, for one and a half billion, that's chump change. That's nothing. That's like dropping a $20 tip. Nothing. So how are we going to set goals and measure our effectiveness so we do the best smartest planning we're capable of, and at the same time, trust and pray and be open to whatever surprises God may want to give us. God's always into a surprise. Stay flexible. Stay open. Don't become hardened and set and rigid, or you'll kind of move what God wants to do. Well, it's that kind of a challenge that led the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Philippi, and you can read about the beginning of this church in Acts chapter 16. It was a motley, non—what non, uh, would I say? These are people you wouldn't pick out of a police lineup that started the church. This is in Philippi. 
There's a woman. She's a wealthy business entrepreneur. She hears the good news. She gives her life to Jesus, and she bankrolls the entire first church in Europe. Then there's a jailer. Paul and Silas are thrown in jail and beaten for preaching good news. An earthquake comes. The jailer's going to kill himself because all the prisoners' chains have suddenly come off, and he knows what's going to happen, so he's going to commit suicide. And in Acts 16, verse 28, he says, don't harm yourself. We're not going to leave. Your life won't be at stake. No pagan ever said in jail, we're not going to leave. So he was blown away. And the jailer was so moved that he became a follower of Christ. Then he took Paul and Silas home, and the whole family was converted. And that's the beginning of this little church in Philippi. It's a long way from Jerusalem. Philippi was the first church on the European continent. And Paul wasn't exact, actually planning on going there, but he had a vision. He had a dream. And in the dream, there's a guy from Macedonia saying, come over, come over and help us. Paul was actually trying to get to Asia, but he couldn't get there. So he responds to the call. Philippi was a tough area. It was a Roman colony. 85% of the inscriptions are in Latin that are there. And the residents of Philippi were all citizens of Rome. I say that because I want you to see they understood about power and wealth and status, and like Americans, they were drawn to those things. They had a smorgasbord approach to religion. Well, they're very religious. They were very pluralistic. They had local gods. They had people involved in emperor worship. There were Roman gods, Greek gods, gods from Egypt, gods from Syria, all over the place. Here a god, there a god, everywhere a god. They, they, they were big into lots of little gods. So initially, it's just this one little church standing alone on an entire continent. Got the picture? But that little church grows. Paul leaves. He's gone for several years. And then one day they get a letter from him. And you can imagine their excitement. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. In almost every letter Paul writes, he starts it off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He lays out his credentials first. But he doesn't do that here because he wants to teach this emerging new church all alone on the continent about the power of servanthood. He models for them a kind of partnership. So he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the elders and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1 verse 1 and 2. Then he gives them this prayer, and this is a prayer they would discern God's vision for their lives and for that community, that church at Philippi. This is in verse 9 and 10 of Philippians 1. He says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If I paraphrase that, Paul was saying, I want you to discern the best in your life, your faith, your work, your character, your relationships, your church community. I don't want you just to bog down and settle for okay. I want you to thrive. I want you to grow. Because, folks, when God creates anything, His will for it is to thrive. 
In John 15, Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, herein, in this way is my Father glorified that you become fruitful, that you bear much fruit. So don't ever pray if it be thy will that my class grows, that my business grows, that I become more successful and excellent in whatever area I happen to be. God says, you honor me when you thrive, when you do well, when you bear much fruit. So survival is not God's will. Thriving is God's will. Have you ever thought about this, those of you that have children? No parent ever takes their child to a pediatrician and says, how can I make my child grow? Never. Because if that child is healthy, every parent knows it's going to grow. They don't grow at the same rate, but boy, they all grow. And so if your child isn't growing, every parent will ask, why isn't my child thriving? Why isn't my child growing? And I'm told by those who work in pediatrics and neonatal in a hospital, sometimes a baby will be born and then for no discernible reason go into decline. And sometimes they die. And doctors and nurses will write on that child's chart the letters F-T-T, failure to thrive. Boy, those are sad letters. And that's not God's plan for you, and that's not God's plan for His church. We saw in the introduction of this book uh, how Paul crafts the introduction. He's modeling servanthood for people who live in a part of the world and in a culture where there's a lot of inducement to pursue wealth and power and status. So Paul writes this book about the possibility of life beyond anxiety. And I want to focus on two gifts this morning that he gives to the church at Philippi and that he gives to us as well. First, he gives them a mission, something to do, an assignment, something that's glorious to achieve, a mission. Number two, he gives them a promise, something to look forward to. Business guru Peter Drucker said that when a group of people band together around a mission, they always have to continually ask, what business are we in? The railroad missed it. They thought they were in the railroad business instead of being in the transportation business, and the aviation business killed them. You see what I'm saying? Everything keeps changing. Phillips, who, who was very dominant with televisions back in my generation, some of you young people wouldn't know what that was, but we had tubes and stuff and the TVs and radios. They thought they were in the TV business and lost the market share when phones came out and smartphones emerged because they forgot they were in the communication business, which could be TVs and stereos and uh, phones and watches, and they lost it. So you got to be reminded, what business are we in? How could we answer that question if we were asked that? What would we say? Paul puts it like this, Philippians 1, verse 3 through 5. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy, listen, because of your partnership in the gospel from this day from the start. So, we are partners 
in the gospel. Now, here we go again. You've heard me do this many times. The word gospel gets really junked up in our day. It has now become a religious word. We have phrases like gospel singers are coming this weekend or gospel preachers, and it can conjure up pictures in people's minds of polyester suits and big hair and manipulative messages, all kind of stuff. But it was never a religious word. You religious folks in here, are you hearing this? The gospel was not a religious word ever. It simply meant good news, good news. So when, when they had good news about anything, it was called the gospel, good news. And here's the thing about good news. Good news always spreads. Yeah, it does. It goes wild. When a brand new restaurant opens up, word gets around. When a great movie hits the screen, Star Wars, setting all records, there's a buzz. <laughs> when the Powerball hit 1.3 billion today, woo, the buzz, the buzz is out there. Everybody's talking about it. You go win that Powerball, what? everybody's talking about it because if you did win it and you still have a brain and good values, it's good news. But it'll destroy a lot of people who don't. But I'm believing you, you're going to do good. Amen. Just give me a call. <laughs> if Nordstrom's, if Dillard's were ever to have a one-cent sale, boy, you'd hear about it all over town. Why? Because good news spreads. We are not merchants of bad news. The church has suddenly become the policeman of the world, the judger of all people, and the enforcer of don't. And we've lost do, the good news. We've lost what gospel meant, what we are assigned to preach, and as a result, the world in general does not see the church as a merchant of good news. That's sad. We've lost the market share for that very reason. I'm not saying it, it certainly wasn't intentional. It certainly isn't the heart of those who do. But somehow, somewhere, it doesn't happen overnight, a church gets off track. You can get off track. You can get goofy if you're not careful. And so, we've got the best news ever. It's Jesus' news that God is active in the person of Jesus Christ, that He became a real human being, that He lived and taught and died on a cross for the sin of the world, was resurrected from the dead, and now redemption of the world is possible. And He created this new community called the church. And now there's hope for the poor, help for the sick, liberty for the oppressed and for the captive. The best news ever is Jesus' news. This is not a political message. You're a citizen of America. You have a lot of rights called civil rights. Use them. That's a blessing. But those are not Bible rights. They didn't vote in the New Testament. They were under Roman occupation. You have the right to vote. You should vote. But this church is not a political institution, and many have become that. No, no, no. I want you here. I don't care what your affiliate, only God can change a heart. Only God and His Word can shape values that He wants me to represent in this world. Now that'll affect me as a citizen, and it should affect you as well. But I'm back to our mission. Our mandate and our mission is not political. You as a citizen, it is. 
You live in this country. Don't lose your rights. Exercise those rights. But that's not my assignment in this church. This church is a merchant of good news to Democrat, Republican, Independent, Tea Party, and non-voter. To everybody. To everybody. The stripper down at the men's club, the, the, the pimp who's got the, the girls working for him, the, the people selling cocaine, the gangbangers, uh, for nice religious people having affairs that are successful CEOs. You're in there too. Yeah, everybody. Everybody in there. Gee, you know, we're all, we're all busted up, broken people. And the only good news is that redemption is possible, thank God, through somebody else, not through me, not through what I could do or can't do. I'll never make it. So it's Jesus' news. And he just kept spreading, spreading. So that's our business. We're in the good news business. We exist not primarily just to hold services, to run programs. Our mission is to help people meet, love, and follow, and follow this man, Christ Jesus. That's why we're here. He said, follow me. He, do what I do. Watch me. Listen to me. Espouse my character to people. I don't care if you're white, black, Hispanic, mixed. Follow me. Do like I do. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This way of thinking. Quit thinking like an American. Think like a Christian. Don't think like a white man. Think like a Christian. Don't think like an Asian or, well, you know, I'm, I'm Irish and I have a hot temper. No, well, you, you got red hair. You were born in Ireland and you're full of hell. It's not about, it's not about your race. And God can fix your heart, change your temperament. John was called a son of thunder and probably a few other adjectives because he always wanted to burn up every city that rejected Jesus, and he becomes the apostle of love. Who did that? Jesus did that. Changed him. Changed. He said, I didn't come to kill everybody. I came to save men. You got the wrong idea. You go to some churches, my God, you think we're going to burn down everything. It's like, stop it. This is good news stuff here. And if it's not good news and you heard it, then you didn't hear the gospel. And all Jesus told us to preach was the good news. Now, there's enough bad news out there. So it's vital to understand why we're here and our mission if we're going to thrive. All right? I used this, oh, eight years ago or so, but I want to use it again. Uh, <laughs> Nantucket Island in Massachusetts, there's a, a little museum. It's still there. It's devoted to an organization started centuries ago. <clears throat> In those days, travel by sea was risky and dangerous because they had violent storms in the Atlantic, rocky coast off Massachusetts. They didn't have weather forecasting. <clears throat> I'm sorry. They didn't have radar to navigate. They had nothing. So lots of people lost their lives just a mile or so off the coast. So a group of volunteers went into the life-saving business. They banded together and formed what was then called the Humane Society. Now, this one wasn't for animals. It was for people. Okay? And they built little huts along the coast. Those little huts had supplies and blankets and food and water in them so they could resuscitate people coming out of that cold water with hypothermia or whatever other issues they may have. They could care for them. So they put these little huts all along the coast along Nantucket, and they would have watchers. The watchers are the people who would watch the sea at all time, and whenever a ship would go down, the word would go out, people would drop everything they were doing and devote themselves to saving every life they could. They did it for no money, no recognition. They did it simply because they valued human life. And to remind them of how serious they were about their mission, they had a motto. 
you have to go out. You don't have to come back. You wouldn't think that'd be a real good recruiting slogan, would you? <laughs> got to go out, don't got to come back. And you think about it. People would risk everything they had, even their lives, to save people they never met. But over time, things began to change for that little community. After a while, the United States Coast Guard was formed. It started to take over the task. And for a while, the Coast Guard and the Life Saving Society worked side by side. But eventually, another idea carried the day. Let the professionals do it. They're better trained. They get paid for it. So the volunteers stopped manning the little huts and stopped searching the coastline for ships in distress, and they stopped sending out teams to rescue drowning humans. Here's the funny thing. They could not bring themselves to disband. That life-saving society still meets to this day. They have dinners every once in a while, I think in Boston. They hand out awards for stuff. They enjoy each other's company. They still have a good time. They still exist. They just are not in the life-saving business anymore. Doesn't happen in a day or a month or a year, but over time, over time, a church forgets it's in the life-saving business. And they usually don't disband right away. People meet, they enjoy each other's company, they have services, they run programs. We have in every large city churches that are over a hundred years old. The buildings are usually large, cold, and almost empty. But they're well endowed by old wealthy members who can keep it running and keep it in business, although it went out of business years ago. Their focus has changed, and they're not looking out at the coast anymore. They're looking at themselves all the time. And they're not sending out teams anymore to people. They're just focused on themselves. Let's get gold dust. Let's get gold teeth. I've been, I've seen all this. And churches formed around that. And the whole meeting was about them trying to get gold dust on their hand or forehead. And then there was gold teeth. Remember that one? And the guy that formed that from Los Angeles was on the front page of the Los Angeles Times as Tim Story and I sat together eating breakfast in the Hilton Hotel front page, and the orthodontist told the, the, the newspaper he put the gold tooth in the man's mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but if God's going to fix teeth, I want white. <laughs> Excuse me. I do, unless you're going to pull it out and melt it down when the price of gold goes up. How many of you would say that's a distraction from our mission? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to say, you can lose your focus real quick, and then it becomes so, I'll do you, you do me. That's, I'm trying to show you. You can do that, but you're not going to thrive. You won't grow. You're not doing what Jesus said was our main business, which is preaching good news and reaching out to people. You can box yourself into a corner so that you become a political entity, then you've just excommunicated the potential to give good news to people who are in other groups. You just cut yourself off. That sounds stupid to me. I'm a fisherman. I want everything to bite that hook. Right? I want to throw the net in and bring it all in. Jesus used that as an illustration. I'm not after a certain class type or income people. It's everybody's included. Everybody. Rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, broken, stripper, what, whatever. I've been desperate a few times. I might just strip up here one if it helped get more people in. 
but I don't think it would. I don't think it would. And so these people become introverted instead of outward focused. And they're not scouring their neighborhoods, their offices, their schools to see if there's anybody who needs to be saved. See? And they forget. Jesus put us in the rescue business. And he did it in the hands, he put it in the hands of volunteers, not professionals. And they, these churches hold services week after week. They got a building, they got a budget, they take offerings, they have a staff, they have programs. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. They gather around when Jesus is going to come back, or they gather around every other issue but the main issue. And so, having witness of Then we had, we had people who says, well, the church should be built around laughing. It should, I laugh all the time, so it's not even hard for me. But there, these are different emphasis that go on that, that the enemy's doing this with glee, saying, I got you off your main mission. It's not like any one of those, except the gold tooth nonsense, was evil. It's just that it's a distraction from our main purpose. People, people didn't, these, these, look at this place, this room. People didn't come here for gold teeth. People didn't come here for a political agenda. You guys aren't here for that. They're, they're, we hope there's joy. We hope there's, there's, there's encouragement. There's a possibility you could change. There's a possibility you could have a great future. There's a possibility for healing, for deliverance, for renewal and restoration, for a great life beyond okay. And, and people are attracted to good news. It spreads. It's comfortable. I like it. It's not guilt, shame, and condemnation. And so these churches keep getting on the sideline, and what happens over a period of time? You can write over the door of that church, F-T-T, failure to thrive. And I hope we understand Jesus is still looking for people willing to go into the life-saving business. He's looking for people in church communities where people are willing to band together and say as a team, I'll bring whatever gifts I have. We'll create a little hut of refuse right here at Summit. That's what we are. Now, of course, we don't save people. God is the only one that does that. But He does invite us to partner with Him in that mission. And I'll tell you what that means for us at Summit. As long as there's anybody in this city, this state, this region, or around you who does not know Jesus, as long as there's anybody who needs hope, who, who, who needs mercy, who stands alone, who needs help, who needs fellowship, we're not done. We still have a mission. Anybody remember the movie, The Blues Brothers? Dan Aykroyd and John Bellucci. I miss John Bellucci. I think their names were Jake and Elrod. Did I get that right? I think it's in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. Well, I love that movie. Uh, there's two central characters in the film, and they're trying to raise money to pay taxes owed on a Catholic school they attended as kids to keep it out of foreclosure. And they have a standard line throughout the entire movie. Every time anybody asks them what they're doing, they give this standard response. Well, I mean the Lord, we got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> We're on a mission from G-A-D, God, if you're Canadian, God. 
I love Dan. And that's the big joke in the movie. These wannabe, no-talent musicians think they're actually on a mission from God. But let me tell you something, Summit, in all sincerity, we are here on a real mission from God. We really are. And if you know Him, you're on a mission from God. This is not a casual thing. This is good news thing. And because human beings are immortal creatures, God's planned an eternal destiny for every one of us. You and I have been made partners of the gospel when we come together and say, whatever gifts I have, even if it doesn't look like much, I'll try to bring to this fellowship. I'll have a heart for the world. I'll have a heart for the poor. I'll pray for people who are going down. I'll share my life. I'll share my faith with people. I will tell my story. People, you know, Paul gave his life to that, and millions of people throughout the history of the world have given their lives for that. We're in the good news business. That's our business. We exist to help people meet, love, and follow Jesus. That's our mission. Last, second promise. We got a promise. We got a mission. And now we also have a promise. And this promise is applied to you and me as individuals, but to us as a fellowship. And here's the promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Have you ever started a good work and not finished it? You know, if you belong to a health club, a gym, you always notice at the beginning of January, the place is packed with new people. People on treadmills that haven't treadmilled for a long time. People wearing spandex who should never wear spandex. And the gym gets filled with all kinds of people. And by December, the memberships lists of the club are filled with people who started a good work but faded out before the finish. They didn't complete it. How many of you have ever started a good work? Good confession. Maybe you started a diet maybe a list of home repairs you were really going to do, clean out the garage, maybe you were going to reorganize your time, maybe you made a commitment to become a better student of the Bible, to be faithful with your church, a commitment to tithe or to pray. How many of you have ever started a good work and then procrastinated and not finished it? Just wave your hand. Come on, look around there. How many of you need more time to think about it? procrastination. Here's the good news. God has never done that. God has never done that. Whatever God starts, He completes. God is a finisher. If He starts it, He finishes it. Two thousand years ago, God began a good work in this town called Philippi. And He starts with a businesswoman who bankrolls the whole deal and a jailer, and a couple of escaped convicts. That's the root of the first church in Europe. And now 2,000 plus years later, think about that and all that's happened. You, you, you got Westminster Cathedral, Notre Dame, the Sistine Chapel, universities, the history of Western civilization in Europe for the last 2,000 years. Harvard, Yale, Princeton were built with Christian money who trained missionaries and lawyers out of Christian funds. Now they've become liberal institutions of humanism, but they were built and started by Christians. Hospitals, orphanages, try that with these other religious groups and extreme groups. They don't help anybody. They don't do anything for anybody. 
But Christianity did, and all of Europe's covered. I've stood in some of these places. Oh, by the way, most of them have lost their mission, but they were started and founded beautiful, incredible. They were founded by their mission to spread good news, and in their day it worked, but somewhere they got off track. And now they're just tourist attractions, so you can go through and look at a few coal people in a coal building and go, wow, what a place. Well, ain't nobody in it, but what a place. That can happen. That can happen here. That can happen anywhere. But this place thrived. Now, you think about that. We're on the other side of it. But it all started with that little motley crew in the town of Philippi 2,000 years ago. How do you explain that? Well, it's because he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. You ought to know that. Whatever God starts in you, he'll finish it. Yeah, but this happened, Rick, and well, I've had that setback, and and now this situation, doesn't matter. He'll finish it. If he has to take you somewhere in a belly of a whale and puke you out on the beach, if he has to back up the sun 10 degrees like he did for Hezekiah, or stop it in the air and hold it, gravitational forces for Joshua to defeat the enemies, or to get a 90-year-old woman pregnant, try that one on. You say, well, that sounds pretty. Or a virgin to conceive, no problem for God. If God starts it, God will finish it. That's why no one should ever lose hope or lose faith that what God starts, God will finish. And I've always felt that for us. 32 years ago in San Antonio, Texas, Summit Christian Center started, just a few people. It was pitiful. They didn't have any budgets, didn't have any programs, didn't have any money, didn't own any equipment, didn't own any buildings. But they met, they worshiped, they worked, they gave, they sacrificed, and they prayed. And today, we got a few thousand people, 68 acres of property, opportunities to reach even more people and make a difference in our world. Why am I optimistic? Because he who began the good work is faithful to complete it. He's not through. It's been our privilege to travel, send people to far corners of the world, to build and pray and help win people to Jesus Christ. We've put hundreds of thousands of dollars into agencies, social agencies. We've given to the poor, AIDS victims and hospices, orphanages, overseas and here, SAM's shelter, abused women's shelter, Habitat for Humanity, Church Under the Bridge for the Homeless, Child Protective Services. Our own Pam Allen here, member of Summit, has a ministry called Eagle's Flight that helps parents and children with special needs and autism. She helps refugees abandon and murdered babies. She's been on TV this year more than newscasters because every time somebody throws a baby away or a baby is found abandoned, she not only raises the money to give that baby a Christian burial, and we've had two in our back room back here because of her and her effort to raise money to give that child, which is a human being, unwanted and unloved, a Christian burial and love and respect as human life. And then she goes to see the mother in jail or in the prison and tries to share good news, mercy, and forgiveness with her. This stuff goes on all the time, but unseen by most of the people around here. Now, I think we ought to adopt a new motto for our missions around Summit. You have to go out. You don't have to come back. That's fun, huh? I don't know how good that'll get you to go out and sign up in one of our ministries, 
but it goes on all the time. Marriages put back together, people stuck in an addictive behavior go into recovery, lost people find Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul says in verse 4 of Philippians 1, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because we are partnering with God in the good news business. I close. I hope you're a partner today. You know, in organizations, there are three kinds of relationships. There are customers. Customers say, meet my need, meet my expectation. I want it longer, shorter, cooler, warmer, softer, louder. It's all about me. Give me what I'm looking for, customers. Then there's the employee. They generally do what they're told to do. They fulfill their obligations. But if it's not in their job description, there's a good chance it's not going to happen. Ever hear the phrase, not my job? Hmm. Remember, I'm not talking about real employees. I'm talking about the attitude of people that go to church, customers, employees. And then, thank God, they're partners. A partner says, I'm in. I want to help in everything around here. I'll go, I'll risk, I'll serve, I'll love, I'll give, count me in. God, just say the word, and I'll tell my story to someone. And if God planted you here at Summit, I pray this will finally happen to you, that God will call you out of the customer role and out of an employee role to become a partner with us in the good news business. And it's kind of strange that although, as Americans, we're drawn to being customers, there's not a lot of joy or fulfillment in being a customer. When you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, I've never heard any of them say, I want to be a great customer. That's my ambition in life. See, where the joy ends up is with people who say, I want to have an open hand before God with my life, my time, my energy, my gifts, and my money. I want to partner in the good news business. And when a whole spiritual family, a community does that, when people band together and build a little hut of refuge and decide to go into the life-saving business, you got no idea where this thing may end up and lead. It started in Philippi, and a whole continent changed. Let me challenge all of us to pray that prayer from Philippians, God, help my love to abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight so that I can discern your best. God, help me not settle for okay. Help me discern the best for my life, for my family, for my church and my community. The best. I want to thrive, not survive, and I definitely don't want to die. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.